Today on the Everything 80s podcast, the story of deregulation and how Ronald Reagan brought us He-Man and My Little Pony. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out. This might be a topic... I mean, very few people are, are probably aware of, I mean, myself included, and it's one of the more interesting things I learned in the last year or so, and it's this idea of deregulation, and that's basically taking away the restrictions that were once in place regarding children's programming and content and advertising and what could be shown and promoted to kids. There was a time where everything was so highly regulated that the concept of cartoons and commercials for toys during cartoons, which are commonplace now, never actually existed. And it was really thanks to Ronald Reagan and his lifting of these laws, which, you know, for better or worse, weren't good for kids, but provided us in the 80s with a ton of new content. And that's why you see in the 80s an avalanche of new shows and toys and products and junk food and everything like that. So this is this episode is going to be all about how that came about, this idea of deregulation and how it put things into place and the rules and restrictions around advertising the kids and what those look like now. I mean, so it's going to be a very general overview. So before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. Okay, let's do this. So like I said, this should give you a good overview of this whole topic, but like this topic itself could be an entire podcast just devoted to this idea of uh, deregulation and the advertising, the the kids issue and everything like that. But that's the thing. If you grew up in the 80s or you're a fan of the 80s and all the different, uh, you know, properties and intellectual properties and creations from, like I mentioned, He-Man and G.I. Joe, My Little Pony, Transformers, all that sort of stuff probably have Ronald Reagan to thank for it. So despite the bombardment in advertising we face today, especially children, there was a time when people were on the lookout for, you know, their what they call promotional well-being. Rules had been in place since the 1960s when advertisers discovered how television could be the perfect gateway to get their products in front of as many young eyes as possible. This is very important, obviously, because children dictate so much of a family spending. And you can, if you have kids or you're hearing this and you can think that there's no way the kids dictate that much. They absolutely do. Meals, movies, entertainment, travel, they are usually all determined by what the kids want. Children have been seen to influence 95% of selecting a restaurant, 89% in what beverages are bought, and 80% of where a family vacation will be taken which seems crazy, but again, it's a very real thing and they call it pester power. And it's essentially, if you remember yourself whining and crying for something, you wanted more than life itself, such as whatever, a certain toy, cereal in a grocery store, candy. More often than not, you or the kid would end up getting it. And that's the power of pester power. So in the 1960s, and with this all in mind, this idea of pester power, advertisers set their sights on the thing that was starting to raise a lot of children more than their parents would, television. Fortunately, there were watch groups, and they realized that this was a very unfair practice. 
So what was the first show that they targeted that they thought was taking advantage of kids as far as advertising? You never would think this, but it's Romper Room. That's right. The beloved and seemingly harmless children's show, you know, where you hope you would hear your name in the magic mirror when you watched it. I'm hoping you watched it or are familiar with Romper Room. If not, just YouTube some Romper Room and you'll see how childlike and innocent the show was. But it was one of the very first targets. Romper Room had at one point a line of toys that they would subtly try to promote during the show. This is obviously nothing new as the advent of television really is built around advertisement. And it still is today. I mean, TV's not there technically to entertain you. It's there to sell advertisements. And they use the TV shows as the vehicle to deliver those advertisements. So, I mean, considering the advent of TV itself and, you know, product placement within episodes that almost happened from day one. And, you know, we get the name soap opera as television soap operas in the 50s would be, would be produced by soap making companies like Procter & Gamble. The products would be written into the script of the episode to create awareness um, of Procter & Gamble brands and new products and whatever. And they had been doing this as far back as the 1930s, but with radio. So whatever, this is all fine and good for daytime TV and, and whatnot, but it was seen as harmful when it came to targeting children. The Action for Children's Television, ACT, was formed in 1968 in Massachusetts as a grassroots foundation to improve the quality of children's programming, and Romper Room would be their first victim. They also went after any children's show that promoted violence, such as, again, going in the late 60s, things like Fantastic Four, The Herculoids. Uh, and Birdman and the Galaxy Trio. These are just a few that they went after. The ACT was able to drive these shows off the air, and this is what brought us new shows like Scooby-Doo, which were seen as less harmful alternatives. But again, you know, with Scooby-Doo, you just ignore all the drug connotations and influences that possibly went into it. So the ACT would spend most of the 1970s gathering information in regards to the psychology of advertising to children. Also, they would look at the damage that would come from it. So their findings, children, especially younger ones, cannot differentiate between a cartoon and a commercial, let alone if the commercial is in cartoon form. To them, it's all one big block of entertainment. So advertisers knew this, including the toy and junk food manufacturers. Children have very little understanding that commercials were persuasive and they could easily buy into the message being sent by the advertiser. The junk food and cereal commercials were the worst as they knew how lucrative that pester power really was. Every attempt was made to disguise commercials as cartoons and entertainment. So that's when the ACT would put a crackdown on that whole practice. They requested that the FCC put regulations in place that would limit the advertising attack that children were facing. So here's the guidelines that had to be followed. A minimum of 14 hours of programming for children of all ages through the week. No commercials could be shown during children's shows, and hosts on children's shows cannot sell anything. Shows also needed to disclose when the program was pausing and a commercial was beginning, kind of that, you know, this show will be back after these messages. So things are going along pretty well. Things are in place, and, you know, people are having this protective, you know, demeanor regarding children's and advertising and, and keeping them away from stuff that they really are in no control to process and handle. And then Ronald Reagan became president. 
One of the first big things Reagan did when he became president was appointing a new head of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, who was named Mark Fowler. And one of the first things Fowler did was deregulate everything that had been in place up to that point. So when I say deregulation, that's just taking away all the the rules and you know restrictions and everything that were in place. He claimed that the marketplace should dictate what was to be successful and nothing should stand in the way of that. So basically screw the kids. The action for children's television obviously is freaking out and they don't want to take this lying down. So they start a task force and compile 60,000 pages of expert testimony from child psychologists, nutritionists, researchers, and everything. The research reiterated the fact that young children cannot distinguish between an ad and reality. The ACT also was looking out for the best interests of kids and campaigned for higher quality shows that had an educational component. They just didn't want things that were going to be straight up marketing tools against kids that were so susceptible to this. $16 million was raised to lobby against this task force and you obviously know who won out here. Fowler nixed the task force, of course, and 1981 would be doomsday for many classic educational and beloved shows. First on the chopping block was Captain Kangaroo, followed by the beloved Schoolhouse Rock, then the very fitting Kids Are People Too, and another show called Animals, Animals, Animals. The direction of educational, you know, we were saying before, like um, children's programming was required to be beneficial to the kids because of all those um, regulations that were put in place and people had to comply with them. Like I said, we were getting shows that, you know, Scooby-Doo and things like that. And then, you know, that weren't violence driven and more action figure based. And then that evolved into these more educational component things, which have always, you know, existed with things like Sesame Street, but that's public television. But with, you know, Schoolhouse Rock, um, Kids Are People Too, that that was taking um, advantage of the new regulations that were in place. So, you know, with these new um, deregulations, these shows are gone. And then the floodgates open up with the deregulation lifted and no restrictions holding anyone back. Manufacturers could now do whatever they wanted. And this is why you see an explosion of toys, cartoons, candy, fast food items, junk food all in the 1980s. I mean, just cartoon wise, we got, you know, the shows like G.I. Joe, Transformers, He-Man, My Little Pony, Rainbow Bright, Care Bears, Voltron. Put your favorite 80s cartoon right in there. There was a 300% increase in cartoons that had licensed characters. And, you know, as much as we love these shows growing up, you have to be realistic. You're you're watching nothing more than a 22-minute commercial to sell toys and products. So over the course of any half-hour TV show, you're watching 22 minutes, give or take a little bit, of content. And the rest of that time is devoted to commercials. So with a cartoon like Transformers, you know, you're watching a 22 minute cartoon commercial for this brand and um, characters and, and universe and all that sort of thing. And then the commercials in between are either selling toys for transformers themselves or for other toy products. So it's a half hour block of just straight up promotion. Transformers here and GI Joe is, is a very uh, notable standout I'd say of taking advantage of the deregulation so they started, if, if you remember these both, they started with a short mini-series to launch the characters and the backstory of their respective worlds. 
So this would get kids up to speed with the main characters and vehicles and accessories that they would soon be screaming for in the stores, myself included. The toy manufacturers themselves were now intensely involved with the production of the new cartoons and children's programming in general. So also any show that was based on a toy, any like anything you could think of. I don't know if you remember shows like Rubik the Amazing Cube that came out in the early 80s. Anything that could be sold, they could make a cartoon out of. Not only that, the broadcasters were enticed to schedule these shows in exchange for a part of the profit from the toy sales. It's basically the Wild West of advertising now going into the 80s. G.I. Joe, again, is worth looking at as sort of a master class in how to market to children. So over the course of the series, they would release over 250 different vehicles and hundreds of action figures. Each episode of G.I. Joe would usually be focused on a specific new character and or vehicle that would be shortly released. You would then see these same action figures, vehicles, and accessories advertised when G.I. Joe would go to commercial. This is always why when you watch old cartoons like this, you may notice they always refer to each other by their full name and refer to the vehicle by its specific description. It wouldn't be, hey, jump in the helicopter. It would be, hey, Duke, jump in the dragonfly helicopter. Kids needed to know the exact name of the product they would now be dying to have. This makes it a lot easier when searching for it in a store or writing out wish lists for Christmas and birthdays. Christmas time specifically was very interesting. If you go back and look at any shows around this period, kind of going into late November, early December, the episodes then were chocked full of new vehicles and characters to the point the story was i mean story and plot are a whole different issue but specifically in these ones you're basically watching a parade of new (laughs) things that you could potentially buy going into christmas again not surprisingly i think though it is worth pointing out uh speaking of plot and and structure and creativity that many of these cartoons did actually have some amazing creativity early on the Transformers universe, when they, they started with their miniseries, was developed by Marvel Comics, and some real thought and stories design went into creating these new worlds. But like all the other cartoons, Transformers would just become a parade of products too. The Transformers movie from 1986 is another good example of specifically marketing toys. A large gap exists. I Hopefully you've seen the Transformers, the cartoon movie from 86. Again, it is very good. It's, um, it's not kind of crappily animated. It has a real sort of modern anime style to it. The soundtrack really dates the thing, though. But overall, it is pretty impressive as much as um, it was completely traumatizing to a lot of kids. I'll get to that in a second. But... Looking at it as a marketing tool, a large gap existed between the second and third season to put out Transformers the movie. If you grew up during this time and were a Transformers fan, you remember how traumatizing this thing was because of the death of several characters. Spoiler alerts here just in case you haven't seen it. It also includes the death of the iconic Optimus Prime. This was all done with the intent to clear away all the discontinued products from 1984 and 1985 and introduced a new cast of characters for the 1986 toy release. They thought Optimus Prime had run his course absurdly, but kids were so pissed off and upset about the death of him that a massive letter writing campaign was undertaken that forced Hasbro to resurrect him 
in a two-part episode in 1987. So let's look at the issue of like things like junk food and candy and cereal because they too, you know, those manufacturers now had free reign to disguise commercials as cartoons as it was understood that children identify more with cartoons than with reality. So, you know, this is why you see every cereal commercial in cartoon form. Add to that the inclusion of any animals to build even more trust with kids. Anthropomorphism is the using of any animals to sell products because it works. There's a lot of studies that back this up. It's why you see pretty much every cereal company using some sort of animally type cartoon or, you know, mascot such as Tony the Tiger, the Honey Nut Cheerios Bee, Toucan Sam, the Tricks Rabbit, um, the Honey Smacks Frog. That's just a few uh, because these work and, and they capture the attention and sort of minds and imagination of children, you know, real life animals, especially, but cartoon animals, even more so. One of the reasons you saw Joe Camel um, use their cartoon camel to make their cigarettes more appealing to kids. Basically in the eighties, selling things in cartoons became one and the same. So as we're going along here, now where is the action for children's television, um, the ACT? Where are they during all this? They pretty much have their hands tied, but they're still begging that educational shows be produced for commercial stations. Mark Fowler adamantly would state that these stations were within their First Amendment rights to air any shows they wish. By 1988, Congress was starting to look deeper into the bombardment of junk food and advertising in general. It's, I mean, we're looking at the idea of correlation and causation, you know, correlation being things that are sort of associated together, being compared to causation, you know, something that directly creates a cause. But in the 1980s, with this advent of um, this avalanche of advertising of junk food and um, fast food and cereals, it's when you see the obesity rates start to skyrocket. Again, you can't always pinpoint this being the direct cause, but it is interesting when more of this stuff is available and more junk food is promoted and it, um, more things like happy meals and things seeming a little more geared towards children that aren't healthy, that they want and that they want all the time that are, you know, built to be addictive and obviously full of artificial ingredients and high fructose corn syrup and trans fats and artificial flavors and sweeteners. You see this elevation and almost skyrocketing of obesity and heart disease and type two diabetes and stuff like that. So again, that's a whole other topic, but you know, they're starting to see some problems happening as far as the overconsumption of junk food and artificial foods that sort of are disguised as foods. They're almost like facsimile foods. So they're, you know, they're looking deeper. They're looking at this whole thing. And they at least wanted to restrict the direct targeting of children. And they wanted to come up with some new guidelines. The idea was to limit advertising to 10.5 minutes on weekends and 12 minutes on weekdays. Cartoons would also have to provide some educational info. kind of, And knowing is half the battle from G.I. Joe. This would all be put to a vote. This new bill to protect the kids passed 328 to 78 in the House and unanimously in the Senate. And then Reagan vetoed it as one of his last acts as president in November 1988. Again, another screw you to the kids. 
things would come around going into 1990 as the new Children's Television Act, the CTA, was put into place. The CTA was an act of Congress that ordered the FCC to put in place regulations to protect children from advertising. They also demanded that educational and more informative shows be put out for the betterment of kids. They just could not ignore all the data and research and information showing the damage that was happening. The commercial time during kids' shows was now limited to 12 minutes per half hour on weekdays and 10.5 minutes on the weekends. They also banned advertisements for toys that were being aired during the shows that the toy was based on, a.k.a. the exact foundation of something like G.I. Joe. Hosts were not allowed to sell, and a clear separation had to exist between program and commercial during children's shows so they knew commercials were coming. Again, that you may remember all those catchy kind of commercial bumpers, or they call them break bumper jingles, that are around 2 to 15 seconds in length from Saturday morning cartoons. Um, I'm not going to sing them, but you can probably picture, you know, I'm thinking the ABC one where the Cowboys playing, you know, after these messages, we'll be right back. That's why those existed. These regulations would be effective, but to no one's surprise, broadcasters would, you know, find some ways around these regulations. Instead of having to pay to create educational content, some broadcasters would air reruns of shows like Leave it to Beaver, The Flintstones, and The Jetsons, claiming they would cover moral and social issues and they were therefore educational. In a real slap to the face for that old ACT, some broadcasters would air G.I. Joe episodes because of this same workaround, saying that they did cover social issues and moral issues, which they did, but, you know, a little hilarious right there. So start winding it down here. So the 1980s, I mean, they're not just a time of crimped hair and spandex and leg warmers, but a time when some huge pop culture shifts started to happen. We look back on a lot of the entertainment from the decade with nostalgia, but all of it was completely commerce driven. I suppose, you know, we were better off than not having it at all. But ultimately, we have this uh, former actor from Tampico, Illinois, Ronald Reagan, to thank for all these beloved (laughs) products and toys. Okay, let's wrap it up there. Like I said, this this topic itself could be a weekly podcast for years and years that goes so much more in depth. That's just like the general overview and kind of quick snapshot of what deregulation is and why it's so significant and why we so uh, saw so much of this explosion of content and creations and, you know, like they say, intellectual properties and characters and cartoons and junk food and everything like that from the eighties. So, you know, some of it good, some of the intent, obviously not as good. Advertising's going to happen no matter what. The thing in the 80s was it was just more blatant. It had no regard for children. And, and people were still kind of like understanding how all this was working. Like how is a kid going to handle watching eight hours of cartoons on a Saturday morning and then after school and then seeing all these commercials. It was, it was just kind of like a new time for everyone. But, you know, manufacturers and advertisers uh, knew enough to jump all over this. So that's it for me. Thanks for hanging out. Uh, again, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. That way they get automatically sent to you each week. And I will be back very soon. Bye. Bye. 